again for two generations of professional wrestling fans to assess and reapply the criteria of quality for a wrestling match to the man that is often cited as the true doyen of designating star ratings to wrestling matches. We are Lorca Mullen and Simon Cross and we are working through every match that Dave Meltzer of the Wrestling Observer has rated five stars or higher. We are now into part three of a four-part hall of game, hall of matches, um, much like a Tammy Abraham scoring four goals against Nottingham Forest. <laughs> That's timeless, Simon. You can't put a time on that. <laughs> um, unless he scores another one in between. <laughs> so we are continuing on with the Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat matches, and now we're into the epic. The Long One, The Godfather Part 2, The Lord of the Rings Return of the King Extended Edition match. As they go 55 minutes in a 2 out of 3 falls match at Clash of the Champions 6. The Raging Cajun in New Orleans, Louisiana. But unfortunately, Simon, here's something you may not have realised watching it. Do you know what venue they were in for this match? They were in the Superdome. The Superdome, the site of WrestleMania 30 and 34, where we saw Daniel Bryan's WWE Championship main event triumph over Randy Orton and Batista, and his more recent return to the ring uh, with Shane McMahon against El Gener- um against Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens. Cut <laughs> uh, out the bag there. <laughs> and when you saw those matches, you saw a stadium full of 70,000 people. Were you at one of those, or...? Uh, no, no, I was at um, the 32, yeah. so I, I was at, oh no, Dallas, Dallas is the one I went to. I see. You don't get 70,000 people in to see this match. No. There's a grand total of 5,300 people, and as a result, this is a very dimly lit arena. <laughs> it's, it's such a weird, because the moment you look upon the crowd, knowing what you know, like, seeing like it used for NFL games, seeing it used for two WrestleManias. Why why book it? They used to, traditionally, they used to be able to, back in the mid-Atlantic days in the 80s, Jim Cornette, I was looking up some of this stuff about it, Jim Cornette said they would do, they would run the Dome several times a year and they'd get a good 20,000 or so people in there. You know, renting it out is not a big an issue. Not that big an issue. You don't need to fill it out like you did back in the day. You just you didn't have that many twenty thousand seat arenas at that time. That I'm was a, a more recent phenomenon for like bands that would tour around in in those sort of venues. Uh, that's why it's so weird. The Beatles either played in a the theater or they played in Shea Stadium. There was no no middle ground sort of in between. It was just basically basketball courts, and even then the NBA wasn't that huge, so you didn't necessarily need that big in a the space for them to, well they were by the time of the 80s but you know what i mean to, to build them up you don't necessarily have the you know the well, arenas in general yeah. are bigger yeah now. yeah yeah that's true like these arenas would usually be ten thousand, so obviously they want to go even higher um it was really poorly prepared really poorly um championed and advertised 
look it up online. You can see several Jim Cornette videos explaining how poorly thought out it was. But they didn't. Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat did not let that affect them. Uh, they were there no, to they get the show. Like, and this um... was also being screened as well. Uh, just to give an extra uh, context, this was on the same day as WrestleMania Five. This was part of the ongoing series of which the WWF instigated. 1987 Survivor Series was put on on the same time as Starcade '87. WWF was saying, as a direct have rival. One of us, not or the other. Then WCW replied by airing the first free-to-air Clash of the Champions on at WrestleMania Four. They do this again and again and again. And this was, I think, this was the last shot fired during that time before the cable companies and the pay-per-view providers were like, "Stop behaving like children." Yeah. <laughs> just give us your content. Yeah. But um also this just is... another sign of poor organization. We realise that at least for the course of this match, it's Rick Flair. I knew, I knew I knew such a stickler for grammar and pronunciation as you are that the moment you saw that K, you were triggered. Against the dragon Steamboat Ricky. Yeah. The lasers <laughs> didn't work it just didn't work every other aspect of the entrance was reminded, fine reminded me of Warsaw Illuminations <laughs> uh, for our international listeners uh, go google what Warsaw is right now um, other po- the entrances were good though like Flair with his like legion of women he had and a lot of ladies he had a lot, a lot of ladies and um, Ricky Steamboat with his son in his little dragon costume and his wife the hair, the hair on his wife. I don't know what. There was two and a half cans of moose in that hair. The eighties is a weird time for it hair. Is. It is. Like, oh, what did you think of this? This was a little thing during the introductions. Uh, he also did this in the Landover match, and I didn't make a note of it at the time. Tommy Young again, the ref for the match. Whilst Ricky Steamboat was being announced as the champion, he held the championship belt by him. Yeah. To denote this was the champion and this is what the belt was for. What do you think of that as a little touch? Um, I was, it's a bit different. It's just different, I guess. I'm, if they brought I'm... it back, if they brought it back, and you had the ref standing next to the champ during the in-ring introductions, would you would you be against it? Would you like it? Would you think it's a good touch? I think now, the way wrestling has moved on, it's the champion's possession to hold up. Mm. Um, and then you get that bit where the ref takes the belt and then holds it up to hard cam. So, I, 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 I guess I'm a bit of a sticker in the mud now. The way it is, is fine. Yeah. So, like I said, this is a long match. And with the middle, with the uh, Ric Flair, Barry Windham first match that goes 45 minutes, there's a clear pace that Flair works at when he's working longer time. So there's a lot more map-based wrestling going on in this match. It's not, it's not to say that it's slow, but it's no. slower. Um, like they start by trying to get control of like a wrist lock mm. early doors and that you can tell so that, that bit sets the pace of what we're going to get with this one. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just, I just have the, I don't have a lot of my notes to start like slaps to flare before and after the, the opening exchange. So again, it's that thing of Ric Flair trying to get into Steamboat's head, Steamboat returning fire and saying, you're not going to get to me. Uh, Flair challenges Steamboat to come outside and Steamboat was having none of it. Um, I noticed they did a similar spot from the Barry Windham matches where Ric Flair goes for the drop down and instead of jumping over him, Steamboat goes down for a headlock. And whereas the Wyndham one, I'd seen it as almost like a comedy spot. With this one, it was just more of a 
I'm uh, I know what you're doing. Step ahead of you. Yeah. I know you too well. There's a really gnarly shot. I don't know if it was intended to be as like, ooh, as I felt it to be. Um, but Steamboat like gets like a need to flare mm. early doors right in the back of the head. Mm. Um, I think he's grounded flare at the time. Yeah, this but is, yeah. It just looked really brutal. I was like, ooh, because mm. we haven't had that from, we've had him be annoyed. We've had him fire back up. We've, had him hit stiff chops, but chops are, it's more like an acoustic thing. Whereas like with a knee strike, I, I'm just quite partial to knee strikes. Generally, I love the shining wizard as we covered previously. Yeah. Um, that knee just seemed to have like a, just a absolute like sick impact on flair. Mm. And it doesn't, wasn't made a great deal of like more as much as I thought it possibly should be. Yeah. I know what you mean. Um, Ric Flair again does the thing that we saw from... When you look at the Landover match, a lot of these spots repeat themselves from that match. Could you almost see the house shows matches, and like I said, we assume that those matches were very similar throughout the run. Would they be almost a dress rehearsal for this match, or do you think they play they treat this all those matches with as much reverence and importance? I think it's a weird blend, because I think house show matches back then would have had more of a role in pay-per-view promotion, mm. whereas now they're merchandise vehicles. Well, titles were still being change- changing hands in, in house show events yeah. and so on, a lot more frequently than they are now. Uh, yeah, as I say, now like, they're a bolt-on. Th- now I think they've like been three in like 20 years, and one of those was at like Madison Square Garden, so that doesn't really... And there was an accidental one in South Africa, mm. uh, which they rectified later that night, so that's a couple of the title changes right there. Yeah. So, Flair, again, is forcing Steamboat down on the mat and making the pins. Like, he, he keeps holding him down. It's like a series of two counts. And that's partly Ric Flair just desperately trying to get the pin, but also as a means of exhausting Ricky Steamboat, making him exert that energy. And like I said, they're, they're really tight pins. Like, Steamboat's barely getting enough room it goes, to it's like his shoulders up. Seven or eight in a row, it's... You don't really get that level with like modern matches, mm. but he's just trying to drive his shoulders into the mat. A real again emphasis on how desperate Ric Flair is to win. Yeah, he needs this because, like I said, the Ric Flair in other matches when he's the champ, he knows that he doesn't have to win if he doesn't want to. Ultimately, he can get disqualified, he can get counted out. Yeah. Whereas these matches where Ric Flair is taking up a lot more of the attacks and a lot more of the the, the offense, he is desperate to be champion again it defines him yeah there's sort of a moment where um he leaves the ring early doors mm. and you can tell the gravitas of rick flair it's just a really jarring moment because he gets hit by like a red cup from the crowd i don't know if you saw that saw it it just as he cut as they cut back to him after he's left the ring and they cut to steam back as you cut back to him there's two bits of rubbish just bouncing off his back his hair doesn't does. seem to have as much bounce in it either. There's no. There's much life in the hair as there usually is from Flair. More it moppy. Goes, yeah, it goes down quite early and on and stays there. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a mop. Yeah. Um. So, I'm very... And so, then, do you have any notes before we get to the first fall? I've got that now. Um. It's just a bit of a really, like, weird start in a sense because they talk a lot about how like how important the first fall's got to be 
um, on commentary. They, they're trying to feel each other out, much in the same way we were talking about how the first Flair Steamboat match was there, like the opening exchanges in boxing, mm. like the opening couple of rounds in a boxing fight. It just seems to come out of nowhere. Um, and we talked about this again, crossing back to uh, the previous episode where the finish of that match came out of nowhere. I, it's weird because in two out of three falls matches, you don't, it's hard to build up three separate crescendos, I guess. That's why they're difficult matches to do. But I don't know. I don't know to if me, I it was just. I agree with that. Because to explain how the four, first fall goes, Ric Flair goes for the figure for four leg lock. Is this the first time he tries it, or did he get number four then? Well, it's not called the figure four leg lock. Oh. Um, JR calls it a spinning toe hold. Well, that's the first stage of a figure first four. First stage of it. Maybe but he doesn't he get the full figure well, four. Well, maybe in. the reason. Well, that's because Rick Flair, Ricky Steamboat goes for the classic cradle reversal out of it, which has won many a match against Flair. But yeah. Flair, and had also won Steamboat the title in the first match, and Flair reverses the cradle and Flair gets the pin. So that's playing into the previous match again. Because it's like he, what he's got a reversal to Steamboat's reversal. He counters yeah. the counter, and Steamboat has no counter to the counter's counter, and he gets the pin. It's turnabout's fair play, ultimately, in, in Ric Flair's mind. But also, yeah. maybe one of the reasons why they say it's the spinning toehold is because the guy on commentary for this match with Jr. is Terry Funk. Yeah, Terry Funk does talk about the spinning toehold and say how much of a devastating move it was. Um... As well, obviously, like, you know... What a story funk finish. Yeah, he's not one to blow a funk trumpet, but... He... I, don't know, I don't know if I want to blow a funk trumpet. A funky trumpet, maybe, <laughs> but not a funk trumpet. I don't know. To me... I don't know, Flair... I think Flair went for it because he saw, like, an opening, but usually... I think it's because usually in the other matches he's got... He's deeper into the match when he goes for the figure four. It's just a little bit. Well, maybe maybe Flair was baiting him. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. To me, it was just a little. I disagree. I think this worked perfectly within the psychology of this was how it was won in the previous match, so you counter it. That's that's no no no. The that's actual... wrestling rematch one hundred and one. Yeah, the actual how the finish was executed. No, I completely agree. I just think it could have started. Could have been done just a little bit later on in the match but early in the second fall Steamboat gets frustrated and is like yelling at Ric Flair to engage with him and Ric Flair does the strut so it's kind of like we've got the old Flair back because he's essentially in control at this point yeah and so Ric Flair kind of goes back to his old ways oh yeah his, his strategy changes like, yeah. straight away um, and then we get a spot that we saw from the Landover match which is Ricky Steamboat doing a series of elbow drops to Ric Flair's leg and Whilst it's still very impressive, it felt like it felt a more pivotal moment in the previous match where it was all about the legs. Yeah. All about both of them trying to incapacitate the other one's legs. Whereas this just sort of happens at that point. And I don't think he. Well, he goes for a, a Boston Crab after that. And uh, I think he does do a figure four later on, possibly. Uh, he gets the figure four after the uh, repeated leg strikes. Yes, yes, sorry, yes, that's right, yes. Yeah. But it's not But it's not him getting his own back on Ric Flair who always targets the leg, do you know what I mean? Yes, yes, I do. Yeah. Uh, and it's weird because there are more elbows than in um, the Landover match. Really? It's like... The Landover one seemed to go on for ages. Yeah, I swear there's at least 15 or so elbows 
mm. in this particular spot. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like he hasn't, he hasn't had. He's, he's got. I guess the falls what he's getting revenge on rather than attacks from his legs. Yeah, so I yeah, guess like if you look at it from that standpoint, yeah, he's angry at this point. Yeah. Um, um, so it makes sense in that context. I don't think it's out. I don't think it's out of place. I think it makes sense because Steamboat is annoyed at himself and yeah. that's coming through. Yeah. Yeah. You can make that case. Yeah. Um, so, the, so he gets the figure four and then he goes into a Boston crab. And what I, this is one thing I was making a note of. Ric Flair is really great at projecting how much pain he's in. When he's in a submission hold, he's going, Oh God, no, oh God, oh. <laughs> He sort of does the crescendo uh, scream as well. He goes, ah! <laughs> yeah. He starts low and then Builds power behind it. I guess it also works like heels are traditionally supposed to sell a bit louder, a bit, a bit more over the top than a face does. Well, the key tenet of wrestling is one school of heel. The reason they are a heel is because they are weaker than the people they're going up against. So have to use shortcuts to make up for that. But also I think it's like selling is a way you want to get a reaction from an audience. If you want to get sympathy, you want it to make it look realistic so that the audience can kind of feel uh, empathy towards it. Like you can imagine that kind of pain. That's what Ricky Morton was so good. That's what Ricky Steamboat's so good at, like that exhausted, mm. lazy eyes. Is what Johnny Gargano's good, so good at now. Um, whereas when a heel sells, it's to amuse the audience, to entertain the audience, so they'll go, they'll bump harder, and when they're in pain, the pain will be even more exaggerated, and you're kind of amused by it. Yeah, you want, That's the, you want the heel who inflicts, who takes so much pleasure in inflicting pain on others. You want to feel that pleasure too. So the way that you feel it for a bad person is that they're going, "Oh God, ah." Um, and Steamboat's frustrations conveyed more because as soon as he gets uh, Flair manages to get a break from the cat, the Boston Crab, the refs blocking um, Steamboat yeah. from attacking him because Flair is just staying under that bottom rope. He's like, yeah, "I am yeah. not moving for Steamboat, a bit." Steamboat doesn't have a great relationship with Tommy Young. Not <laughs> in this match. Not at all. Shoves him. The refs having to, and the ref is doing good, like blocking. Some good blocking work there. He might have been in, uh, in defence in his high school football team, maybe, as they would say. Um, so, yeah, I've got it next. Oh, yeah. So, again, Ric Flair is so aggressive. He whips Steamboat into the rail when they go outside. He body slams him on the mat on the outside. Then he goes for an abdominal stretch, which he turns into a cradle. Uh, another. It's always interesting when you see Ric Flair do those moves that you don't necessarily associate him with. You know, doing an abdominal stretch, turning it into a cradle, does a double stumps to the stomach, and which we've seen more of, but you know. Yeah, he did that in a Wyndham match. Mm, mm. But he's still doing his old cheating ways, feet on the ropes and all that, telling the fans to shut up. Because <laughs> they go outside after this bit, don't yeah. like, they? They like, yeah, yeah, yeah. as part of, because he now has, after mm. this sort of like begging off period and um, Tommy Young sort of stopping Steamboat's momentum. Flair gets a block, a big block of offense now. Mm, mm. He's like in charge. He's got repeated pinfall attempts. He's he keeps getting Steamboat's trying to get back into the ring after being after they brawl outside for a little bit. And Ric Flair just does not let him. He'll just pound away on him on the apron for yeah. like quite a bit of time. And again, you've got to realize that this is the first match that fans are seeing in general, unless you caught those ten or so show house show matches since Steamboat semi surprised Ric Flair for the belts. So they are seeing this new challenger Ric Flair mode. So this is yeah. new to them in that 
how aggressive he's being, how dominant, how desperate he's being. We have the benefit. To, compared of... to the Clash match where Steamboat was beating him up, you know, and not the Clash, sorry, the, the Shytown Rumble match where Steamboat was in control for maybe the majority of the match. At least far more of the match than a babyface usually has control over them. Yeah, we, we unlike the general public, have the benefit of seeing... Um what went down in the in the last match so like i said we've put... seen the dress rehearsals yeah yeah um but yeah again i just made this note from the previous one as well what steamboat's so good at is gradually getting himself back into the match fighting his way back in not just no selling a, a finisher or just hitting one move on the heel and then they're able to get back into it it's just he's, he gets a chop in when he can. Like if Ric Flair, Ric Flair yells at the fans and Steamboat's like, that's a split second of a chance, I'm going to try and hit him. And Ric Flair having to regain control. And yeah. that happens several times. But then just he gradually quickly, he... Steamboat just gets more and more into the match. And then he hits a superplex. Because um, Ric Flair gives him the opportunity by going to the top rope. Because yeah, yeah. Ric doesn't run to the top rope. Ric takes some time getting to the top well, rope. He runs one. to the ropes when he's done the Flair flip. Yeah, so I guess he wants to try and surprise his opponent who's not expecting that. Yeah, That's but you'd think a more energetic match. It's it's possibly hubris because he's smothered him successfully so many times. That's why he takes his time getting to the top rope. But you'd think someone who has more in the tank would be keener to get up there. So yeah, uh, so he's then after he hit him with the superplex, he like hits a series of strikes to Ric Flair's back. He's targeting the back, and then he hoists him up for the double chicken wing. And Ric Flair submits. He just, and this is like, and even if he could tap out, he couldn't really in that situation. So Ric Flair no. does have to do the shaking the head, shaking the head, shaking the head, nodding, nodding the, head. the head, and that's the yeah. sign that he's submitting. Um, but it's interesting as well because it's not like a trademark move of Ricky Steamboat, like the cross body is or the top yeah. chop or anything. Um, the, when he gets him up in the chicken wing, there's not that much of a reaction from the crowd. So it's a bit of a surprise to them. It's not like when Bret Hart locks in the sharpshooter and the fans know something's going to happen. Or when, or when Flair locks in a figure four. Or when John Cena gets the STF or something like that. Yeah. He, uh, It's a weird one in a sense because they get that nod and obviously everyone's like, oh, it's one all. Mm. Um, there's more context behind it to me, the second four, because obviously Flair had been in the Boston Crab for so for quite a period of time. Um, and it's like a heart back to that. So I get the psychology standpoint for the second fall. But you're right. I, I don't think the crowd were expecting that. And apparent... Well, they say on commentary, we don't we don't know if there's footage of matches we haven't seen or anything like that, that this is the first time that Ric Flair has tapped or submitted. I don't know. That's probably not the case. It's just they always say, you know, they say, oh, Stone Cold Steve Austin's never submitted. And like... Well, yeah. You know, he's... Submit to Bret Hart many times when they will be doing the house show loops and everything. But it's just, yeah. it's just what you're supposed to say when there's a submission. It's like how Andre the Giant's never been slammed, you know, and all that yeah. Sort of stuff. Yeah, I know what you mean. But, like, the fact that it would go to make that point means that, you know, they put some stock behind it. Mm. It may not be completely and 100% actually accurate, but they're still telling the story that this is the first time that Ric Flair has submitted to a move. Yeah. So there's a commercial break at this point. So when we come back, we have actually missed a little bit of the match. There's, there was like a rest period, I think. So we didn't really miss anything between the first. They have like a sixty-second um, rest yeah. period between falls, yeah. And then, uh, so Steamboat gets an abdominal stretch on Ric Flair as we come back, and Ric Flair literally headbutts him to get out of it, which is a nasty little moment. 
Well, this is the point now, because Flair has gone back to desperation. Mm. He didn't expect to be caught in the chicken wing. It's not like, because again, Flair was having a massive block of offense and then takes out a little bit of extra time getting up to the top rope. Superplex hit. The strategy's gone again. Mm. You know, that's why it's why a 1 0 lead in football is so dangerous to defend because. Mm. Yeah, but this is a, like, this is a different context because football matches aren't best of threes. It is no. different. Um, but yeah, Flair flip, does the flip through the corner and then Steamboat stops him with the chop midway through. But then later on, Steamboat goes for a charge in the corner and he gets his leg caught in the ropes. And so that allows Ric Flair to do uh, to get back in control. And this is where it is. It's not the it's the figure four as a real, like real. I'm going to try and get a submission out of you now. Um, he does it. What's interesting is that he does that. He does a bit. There's always that. There's a spot that I think is in all of the matches where they have the the other person's downed and the guy takes both their ankles and they've got their hat. They've got their arms on the ropes, maybe on the top rope, and they lift, pull them up by the legs, and they have to take a big flat back bump. Like an upsy daisy kind of thing, yeah. Flair did that to Steamboat, then Steamboat got his comeback and got his own back and did that to Flair. That's what you usually get when it's a returning the favour spot. It's nearly always the babyface that does it to the heel, the heel getting what they've getting their comeuppance. What they deserve. This time, Steamboat had done it early in the match, and now Ric Flair's the one that's doing it this time. It's an interesting, like, different way of doing things. And whether they even thought that much into it, it's just. You know, they just kind of feel it in that moment. That was yeah. just interesting. Just something that I see. That's usually something where a babyface gets to hit the heel with something that they'd done earlier. This way, it was the other way around. It's this, yeah, it's at this point as well that we start to see like more desperation in the like the, mo- the strength of the moves they're throwing. Because yeah, and uh, Steamboat hits like some sort of like running headbutt kind of thing at one point. I don't know if it was intended to be, but it, that's what it looked like. And Ric Flair's a lot nastier when he's setting up the figure four leg block. He does those like, yanks at the leg with the knee. Yeah. It always look really... I don't know if that does anything, because essentially he's just straight, straightening out a knee. Footballers do that to help someone else who's got a cramp, you know? It's not necessarily... But just the way that you do it, the way that they both sell it is really good. Um, and Steamboat's desperately trying to break the figure four leg block before it can be applied. Um, that it's, the, it's, like, it's the, the reversal spot that you don't actually see that often in these matches. Again, it's like common Ric Flair spots from the 90s that maybe he wasn't doing as often in the 80s. Um, but the figure four used to be so protected, so much more protected than it was at this point, really. Yeah. Um, but they both roll, roll to the rope and the ref's got to untangle them and Ric Flair continues the attack. Ric Flair does the flair flip again and then he does a cross body for a long two counts. Um, R- Ricky Steamboat tries to get him up for a body slam and he can't. Um, he... He, he like takes a sort of splash from it from Ric Flair, like which is something you usually associate with like a Hulk Hogan trying to lift a heel, uh, Andre the Giant, heel, yeah, sort of character. I think Justin Sizem did that with a uh, crater, crater to call <laughs> back to the classic world of sport. <laughs> well, not the classic world of sport. <laughs> no, well, it wasn't. Yeah. Um. So yeah, they're kind of repeating themselves a little bit. A lot of cross bodies and sunset flips. Um, but yeah, th- that sense that Steamboat maybe doesn't have a lot left in him, his knees really fucked. Yeah, and that he's that this is more urgent than it was before because these guys have they know that the other guy knows them now. Um, like after Steamboat hits a flying crossbody, he'll um, he went for like a running elbow drop straight after, and that's what got Flair back into the match. Flair gets um, a sleep hold. And yeah, he, like 
puts himself on top of Steamboat as well, which is usually something like a, a smaller person does when they're putting a sleeper hold on a bigger opponent's. But it's a real kind of... He's putting all of his weight onto steamboats. And then... There's a bit of a botch. Yeah. So the ref puts steamboat's hands up. He does the typical counting the hands. See if it drops. And it drops three times. And the ref's kind of like... Oh. I guess that should be the end of the match. He starts walking to the corner and Steamboat seems to realise, oh wait, I should have... Oh, yeah. Basically what happened is like, whilst they're sort of stood up almost, he, he lifts Steamboat's um, left hand once, I think. And he does the flop. But then they go to the mat and then he does it. So I think Steamboat thinks it should be like three raises of the hands from the down position. Yeah. But what it is, it... it's a continuation of the previous one. So, that was, so what Steamboat thought was the first drop of the hand was actually the second drop. Yeah, because he thought when the uh, when <clears throat> the position had changed, mm. it resets what the hold is potentially. Yeah, and so Jr. covered it pretty well. I thought like it was almost the referee's judgment call, but like he sees Steamboat show some life, and Tommy Young gave him enough time. But there was a chance that if it hadn't have quite worked, Tommy Young would have felt forced to call the bell, and you know, Steamboat had to... hadn't done something quickly. Had to work with it, yeah, on the fly. Um, and then to get out of the like, he, he runs his head into the top turnbuckle yeah. um, to get out of it. Like sort of like as quick, I have to improvise. No one says that Rick could have bitten his tongue or something like that in that moment. Yeah, he goes it does look quite. And then Rick, so Rick Flair actually goes out of the ring, and Ricky Steamer does this amazing babyface spot to get the fans all crazy, kind of like almost like a blindfold match spot where he can't figure out where Ric Flair is. Like, he's exhausted and he's looking around him, but he can never see where Ric Flair is and Ric Flair's behind him. And before Steamboat can know, he gives him a chop block that brings him down. And so he's still going after the legs, picks him up and Steamboat does that great desperation Enziguri. Ric Flair does the woo! And then it's almost like that's the sign. Okay, kick me in the head. (laughs) (laughs) But this is a top rope splash, and like I said, Ric Flair. Ric Flair is really great here. I love this. is like the most nasty, aggressive Ric Flair I've seen, where he's just stalking yeah. Steamboat and he's shoving him and slapping him and chopping him, and like he's almost toying with him. He's like, "You humiliated me. I'm gonna have some fun at your expense now." Yeah, like I have you now. I finally have you after you've taken away my most prized possession. I finally have you cornered. Mm. But Steamboat does the fight back and they do the press slam off the corner. And then he gets up for the double chicken wing again. So obviously the fans know that Ric Flair can submit. But the psychology is knees buckle. And then the ref counts three. Yeah. Now, I had to rewind this a few times because I found, a, I saw a couple of different, I've got a lot. A couple of different points noted down about this. Well, they seem to know that themselves because they repeat it several times. Yeah. Now, I initially thought both sets of shoulders were down, and the replay angles you get doesn't really clear it up. Um, both of them seem to have a foot under the ropes as well. Well, Flair does. That's the whole thing. I don't know if you watched afterwards. Did, did you watch anything after that? Because they do follow up on this. Uh, they talk about it on... the Because Funk and JR do look at the replays again. I, I listened to them do talk about the first set of replays. Yeah. I didn't know. 
Go beyond that. Well, then JR that. interviews Steamboat afterwards, you see. Ah, okay. Okay, so basically what it is that they get them in... Essentially like it was from a ti- almost like a tiger suplex spot. Yeah. And it's a common spot from this time in the 80s that a lot of people really hate. Where one per- where they're both down with their shoulders and one person gets a shoulder up. Or they're both in a double pin position. Or the most egregious ones are where the person who took the fall, who took the suplex or whatever, has their shoulder up. And the one that did it has their shoulder down. That was actually how Harley Race beat Ric Flair for the title back in 1983. And I'm sure it's how many of these... It's a great way of both people saving face, really. Yeah, um, just looking strong and someone just managed to, like... But they show it in the replay. Steamboat does get his shoulder up, but it's, like, no more than, like I said, all those really tight kickouts when Ric Flair's sort of forcing him down to the mat in those really tight cradle pins. Yeah, it's not a clear kickout. He only it's not like, yeah, it's just like, gets away. It's not like he's swung his arm up. It's just sort of the shoulder blade from the back has been nudged as high up as it can from underneath the weight of Ric Flair, whereas Ric Flair's been in this one. But Ric Flair has his foot on the ropes. The reason for that is so it's a to-be-continued. Yeah. As Ricky Steamboat says in his promo, Ric Flair's had his chances. There are lots of other guys that deserve a shot at the belt, and we must end it here. That's it. I'm going to go on. I'm going to defend the belt. I'm going to fight team. someone else. Yeah. yeah. And then they show Steamboat the replay, and they show that Ric Flair has his foot on the ropes, which is what Ric Flair's remonstrating to the referee after the match. And Steamboat says, if I was Ric Flair, I would have complaints, and I can see where he deserves a rematch. So Ricky Steamboat being the honest guy that he is. Yeah. You know, the virtuous baby. Fair cop, Gov. Yeah, yeah. So basically it was done, that finish was made to set up a, another match, which will be... Part four of this quadrilogy, the match that happens at WrestleWar a month later. So that was the match, 54 minutes and 29 seconds, which is a great length of time in a way, because when you get that long, you think, oh, they're going to go the 60-minute draw, time. yeah. But they didn't. Bro, no, no, Ring they... Honor did that with the Roderick Strong-Brian Danielson match. It, like, finished at 56 minutes or something like that. I think sometimes you've got to have that, though, because you can't yeah, have yeah. people thinking, oh, well, this is where it's going. Well, that's the thing. So it's so that people don't think, well, it's definitely going to be a 60-minute. And that can drain an audience if that's what they think is going to be the case. Yeah, if it's if it's sort of been telegraphed. But also the two out of three falls nature means that it's going to usually be a longer match anyway. Um, but, you know, this is the by far the longest match we've covered so far. Yeah. I think the previous longest match was the Barry Windham... Um, Ric Flair match that went 45 minutes or so. So this is yeah. like 10 minutes. And you had the Yokota, not Yokota, sorry, the, the, the Nagao uh, Asuka match that went 35 minutes. Um, but I don't know. But, 55 that, and 35 is a big difference yeah, when you're watching yeah, wrestling. Of course. And when you're going at the pace that Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat wins. So that was the match. Thoughts? Um, I've pretty much given all like the, I don't have anything additional to add at this point. Um, I was about to ask you the question we always ask um, each other at this point. Um, before I do, do you have any further thoughts? Just that it's amazing how, you know, again, you're just in awe of how much Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat could go and how long they could go. And the oh, yeah, the cardio is it's insane. And they're, they're doing things that like these modern day wrestlers aren't, aren't given the opportunity to do anyway. Yeah. Um, I haven't been to a house show match, so I don't know how much intensity they put into all those matches. But Not a great deal. No. 
So that's my point. These guys are going in a way that no wrestler needs to anymore. Yeah. Um, so that's what, more than anything that I'm in awe of their thing. And I like the way that they really... It felt different to the first match. Mm. Um, oh, no, yeah. Obviously, well, there has, were a lot of has... similarities to the Landover match, but it was still different to that. Yes. They did the three-fall structure. They did the sense of Ricky Steamboat really just surviving Ric Flair. Ricky Steamboat kind of learning, like I said, again, with like the Landover match... Ricky Steamboat kind of realising that being the champ is a lot different to being the challenger. And facing the challenger Ric Flair is a lot different to facing the champion Ric Flair as well. Yeah. It's, um, challengers are hungrier. Mm. It's basically the message that Steamboat is learning. Yeah. So, Simon, for the 17th time, will it be 0-17 or 1-16? Would you give this match... Five stars. No. Uh, again, this sound, this does sound like I am like you know just like edging everyone, and I I am just like it's you know I'm just stringing you all along. Um, it is again. It's a great match. It's very 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 good. I have a slight issue with the first fall. I think you could have done that a couple of minutes later. I could have been a little bit more back and forth there. Um, and I do think it was slightly too long. It just didn't hold me for the full 54, unfortunately. There were moments where I could feel myself having to like consciously engage myself with the narrative as opposed to being taken along by it. But is that more says something about you as a person from 2018? Did you have your smartphone with you? <laughs> Um, I don't think so. I don't. I don't. I don't know. I just. I think there was just a couple of moments where it would just. They would like slow down a hair too much. That's just my thought on it. I guess. Okay. Did did the did the sort of botched moment with the dro- dropping of the hands? Did that bother you? Was that taken into account? Uh, I'll be honest, I didn't factor that in because I hadn't noticed it until we okay. had this conversation. It's only as you brought the point up that I it came to light in my head. Mm. Um, no, it didn't. That didn't have a fact. That, that didn't have an impact on my decision. How about yourself? I think I'm going to give this one five stars because I think if we keep being so almost like we're being too reverent to like. Oh, well, that's a melts of five stars. But if you want to get a five stars out of me, you've got to do something a bit more special, Meladio. With my hands by my hips so high, they're now at my armpits. <laughs> but, you know, I feel like I, I almost I'm giving it five stars because if it's almost getting like too nitpicky. Like there, there seems like a standard. It's not that five stars is the pinnacle. It's like people can go beyond it. Yeah. Like, I think there will be matches that I will probably rate better. Than, well, look, it's not my favourite match of all time, but I'm still giving it five stars. You know, that's what I'm saying. I think there have been matches that I think are better or were better or, or more down my taste, but I just don't think asking them to do what they did, which was to give them, give this sense of an exhaustive, high, top, fast paced, even though it was slower than they usually go, it's going at a pace. It's not going at a, like a... 
you know, a Luthers holding a headlock for ten minutes kind of pace. Oh no, no, of course. Which not. is which is what which is what Luthers was supposed to do at the time. You know, that's something yeah. having to go at Luthers. But I just think this this is something that maybe mo- most wrestlers now, some of the most talented wrestlers in the world, couldn't necessarily do for fifty five minutes. Couldn't do with this crowd, and it must have been hard doing it in front of five thousand three hundred people in a really dimly lit arena that could hold 70,000 or however many the Astrodome could hold at that point. That's got to be a little bit dispiriting to you anyway. Yeah. Um, and they're get... still going out and having the match that only those two could have at that time. But then you could always say you've got to be professional at all yeah, like, but times. Yeah, being professional. There's not necessarily trying to have the greatest match of all time, which is what some people will think of this match. Yeah, but you've still got your audience at home to think of as well. But you it... know what I mean, Simon? I don't know. I think those people. This was so under advertised and everything. It wasn't even that. It was. It was being screwed. You know, Ric Flair. You got to realize at this point, Ric Flair is losing his mind at the ineptitude of the people in charge of WCW to the point that he insists that he has to take over as the Booker. So and this is well. this is a Ric Flair that's really mentally exhausted with what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah, as much as anything, and so this is almost like his his liberation to go out there and have these matches. I don't know, I guess I subscribe more to the point that you've got still got to see. Yeah, just because the audience... Have, they think... could have just had a very good match, not had yeah. one of the best, maybe, you know, what was wrote, you know rated the best match of the year. I think in the Wrestling Observer, this was the one that got the, the match of the year or something like that for 1989 and got five stars from Dave Meltzer and everything. I just think that it's like, there's a certain standard for what five stars is and I think it surpassed that for me. Okay. So I'm going to give it five stars. So you can be the really awkward one here. <laughs> but maybe well, you're changing that, your, your mind for the next and final match of this quadrilogy. Because we've got one more Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat match to go. And then we've done with these two against each other as far as five-star matches go for the rest of our time watching these five-star matches. So that's where you've got to go. We are going to watch... Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat on May the 7th, 1989 in Baltimore, Maryland at WrestleWar Music City Showdown. The match that was cited by many as the greatest match of all time. So, nothing to get too uh, overhyped about. <laughs> You're really leaning into that, aren't you? No. Well, I just think it is, you know, if it, sometimes those things can be a, a millstone as much as anything but until then if people want to get in touch with you Simon and say what's your bloody problem how can <laughs> they do that they can get in touch with me on Twitter where I'm so known as Simon Crossfree so so known because this is the third Ric Flair Ricky Steamboat match we've talked about and a nice little lazy little tidbit there how can get people get in touch with yourself Lorcan they can get in touch with me by Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or Letterboxd or many other means by looking up Lorcan Mullen. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for armbar, N for... Aye. <laughs> A for atomic, N for nuggy. There we <laughs> there go. We go. Uh, yeah, and you can get in touch with me. And you put an at gmail.com at the end of that and that's my email address. We have a show email address of lmtyspod at gmail.com. So, in preparation for our final wander down the Ric Flair 
uh, Ricky Steamboat Avenue. Feel free to watch it as well and give us your own opinions. We're very much looking forward to that. See what you would give five stars. But until then, my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a five-star time. Until the next time.